to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter number 17. I'm sure thankful for the opportunity to speak. And I'm glad he didn't announce that I was speaking before just now. Or you might not have come. So, First uh, Kings chapter 17 and verse number 1. First Kings 17, verse number 1. And if you have found that, let's just stand, stretch our legs for a moment as we read the Word of God. It's just going to be this one verse. If you're able to do so, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse number 1. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. It just tears my heart out after having studied the background of this verse and what's going on. And uh, like all of you, uh, it's very troubling what's going on in our country and what we see happening before our eyes. And I've really been seeking the Lord past few months. And He has dealt with me. He has shown me some things. And I just want to share with you tonight what the Lord's shown me. And hopefully through it, we can gain some clarity as to what's going on in our country. Some encouragement for those of us who are servants of God and faithful to Him and some actions that we need to be doing and how we can help our country at this time. So we want to look at all of that and hopefully uh, through this we'll, we'll get to that. So I want to speak to you tonight on the subject, God's message to a corrupt nation. Because that's what this was. God's message for a corrupt nation. And let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity of speaking tonight. And Lord, I just pray that you would meet with us. And Lord, that you would convict our hearts. And you would help us, Lord, to be honest with ourselves and with you. And make any changes that we may need to in our life for the sake of our life, for the sake of our family, for the sake of our church, and our nation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. In this verse, Elijah makes his entrance into holy writ very abruptly. He has, this is the very first mention of Elijah. There is no heritage listed of him, no lineage given. As one commentator said, he is a nobody from nowhere. Even though he lived in a very corrupt day, Elijah was a man that was very faithful to God's calling. Elijah's name means Jehovah is God. 
It speaks very well of his parents' faith. Elijah saw things in only two colors, black or white, Jehovah or Baal. He did not just go along with the flow of the corrupt culture of his day, but he stood boldly against it. The battle going on in the nation of Israel at this point is over the issue of whether Jehovah was going to be God of the nation or if Baal was God. Elijah's name and ministry emphatically declared the truth that Jehovah is God. In our text tonight, Elijah comes onto the scene as God's prophet to the king of Israel, Ahab, to deliver a message of divine judgment. There are some clear comparisons to our nation today and the times that we are living in. And as I mentioned before, I think that we can find some clarity as to where we are, some encouragement for what we face, and even some guidance on what we need to do as we consider several aspects to this story in this verse. The first aspect I want us to consider is the corrupt nation. Israel had been a united kingdom under the leadership of Saul, David, and Solomon. Had Solomon remained true to the Lord, there would have been no split in the nation of Israel. But because of his sin, Solomon's sin, Part of the judgment against him and the nation was that it would be divided. We can turn back a couple of chapters to 1 Kings chapter 11, and I encourage you to keep your Bible handy because we are going to look at a good bit of Scripture. 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 4. 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 4. It says, For it came to pass when Solomon was... Old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, we often don't think of Solomon that way, do we? And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord. Well, that just struck me that he didn't go fully after him. He went after him in some ways, but not fully. As did David his father. Then did Solomon build in high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and the hill that is for Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrifice unto their gods. So realize what Solomon has done. He is building temples and also worshiping false gods along with his worship of Jehovah. Verse 9, And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice. 
and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Hmm. And it was this that began the corruption in the nation of Israel. It began with Solomon's sin. It led to bad morals in the life of Solomon and the people of Israel. He instituted bad policies in his government that led to oppression that we see the people wanted relief from when Solomon was no longer king. That, my friends, leads to tyranny, then to slavery or division. Tyranny, simply meaning the arbitrary exercise of power not authorized by law. In other words, the rule of law and order is done away with. When Solomon passed off the scene and Rehoboam, his son, replaced his father, Jeroboam and the congregation of Israel asked him to have compassion on them and bring some relief to them and lighten their load. You know the story probably, it's been preached a lot if you've been in independent Baptist churches much, where Rehoboam consulted the older men who were advisors to Solomon. They advised him that it would be wise that the people would give him their hearts if he would back off of the oppressive policies that his father had. And then he consulted with the young people and his peers. They said, you ought to leave them there and actually tax them more. Put the heavier burden upon them. And keep them under your thumb. And if you know the story, it's recorded there in 1 Kings chapter 12. They rebelled against Rehoboam. And Jeroboam with them. The result was a division in the country. Ten of the twelve tribes succeeded and formed a new nation that we refer to as the Northern Kingdom or Israel. The other two tribes were part of the southern kingdom, or Judah, as it's referred to in the Old Testament. This revolt, though, was doomed to failure. Yes, they were rebelling against the oppression, but it was doomed to fail because they tried to solve the problems of oppression without correcting the cause for the oppression. Yes, it was a great injustice what had been taking place. But the injustice was caused by sin. The sin of Solomon that had not been repented of. The main cause for oppression in any nation is namely the spiritual and moral issues in the land or we could say the sin. Their cry for freedom rang out and for relief from the consequences of that sin oppression, but they did not cry out to God for forgiveness of those sins. And they did not forsake the sins that had taken away their freedom. And until we condemn and forsake what God calls sin in our life and in our nation and in our church, we will never escape the consequences of evil. 
Jeroboam was the first king over that northern kingdom. He started down a very sinful path that they never departed from. That northern kingdom had 19 kings in its history. None of them were godly men. Only Judah, the southern kingdom, experienced a few godly men. Jeroboam was a very wicked, wicked man. 1 Kings chapter 14 and verse 9 says that he did evil above all that were before him. 25 times in Scripture. 25 times the statement is made of Jeroboam that he made Israel to sin. The divine epitaph on his life was Jeroboam who did sin and who made Israel to sin. 1 Kings 14, 16. And what's interesting and what was so very evil about Jeroboam is when he broke away from them, of course, Jerusalem was in Judah. And he did not want all of these, these people going back to Jerusalem because he thought that their hearts would be turned back toward God and want to reunite. And he did not do that. So he corrupted the people by changing the practice of their religion and worship. He corrupted the true worship of Jehovah. He did not stop their worship. He just changed it. And may I tell you, we do not even have the spiritual discernment to realize the changes that have taken place in our religion and in our worship and what the, the big picture is. He did that. He set up His own altars in God so that people would not have to go back to Jerusalem. Convenience. He appointed priests, it says, of the lowest of the people. He lowered the standard. He imitated the true worship of Jehovah by declaring feasts very similar to what God called for. Imitation. A fake imitation and worship of God. These simple changes began a moral and spiritual decline that only got worse with each king. Until we make it to King Ahab, who was the seventh king in the northern kingdom. We can see of Ahab in chapter 16, 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 29. 1 Kings 16, 29, And in the thirty and eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, notice this, above all that were before him. And that's said of almost every king in the northern kingdom. Each time they got in, into power, they did worse than the previous king. And the corruption just continued. And what was bad about Ahab was not only his own sinfulness and corruption, but who he married. 
Look at verse 31. 1 Kings 16, 31. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Jezebel was a very ardent Baal worshiper and led Ahab further into idolatry. But the groundwork had been laid by Jeroboam. And let it be a lesson to us that when we deviate from true worship, we don't stop changing. It continues. And if you have true worship, it will draw your heart back to God. And it will draw your morals back to the standard that God has set. Corruption politically, governmentally, leadership goes hand in hand with spiritual corruption. It has to. Because you cannot have true worship and religion without it affecting your rulership and leadership in a positive way. When he married Jezebel, his corruption intensified and multiplied. She was the daughter, it says, of Ethbaal, meaning Baal is with him. Ethbaal was a priest of Baal, more specifically, a priest of Ashtaroth. Baal was the male god of fertility, and Ashtaroth was the female version of that. Ahab, it said, made a grove and Verse 33 of 1 Kings 16. The grove was the place built for the worship of Ashtaroth. Their religious rites and practices are filled with vile and wicked fornication, male and female prostitutes, human sacrifice of infants. What a corrupt religion. What a vile perversion to even call it that. Jezebel was not just a follower of Baal, but she was a hater of Jehovah. She was the one who sought the death of every prophet of the Lord. And isn't this the way evil operates? It often seeks to be allowed on the basis of tolerance and freedom of expression, rights, and equal time, but once it gains a foothold, you can count on it changing its tune about tolerance and equal rights. Any competitors will be cruelly battered into submission or eliminated. Let's be reminded that evil never tolerates righteousness once it gets the upper hand. The moral religious corruption was inviting great judgment upon the land. And God sent Elijah to deliver that message of judgment and announce its arrival. 
But before he pronounces the judgment that God's going to inflict upon this corrupt nation, he shares a bit of comfort. For those faithful servants of God still in that land. He begins his message by declaring <laughs> that Jehovah was the God of the nation of Israel. <laughs> Ahab and Jezebel were actively and passionately trying to eliminate Jehovah from Israel's theology. It appeared that they were very close to succeeding. Because you remember when Elijah was depressed and was praying and fleeing from Jezebel, that God had told him and informed him that there were still 7,000 who had not bowed their knee to Baal. The problem was the country had several million people at this time. A very small percentage were still faithful, but they were faithful. We can get a sense of how these people felt as we see the direction of our own country. And we see the very same process of decline and corruption going on in our day. But Elijah not only declares that Jehovah was the God of the nation of Israel, he also declares that Jehovah was alive. <laughs> Despite their efforts to wipe him out, to eliminate him, to push him back, the Lord God of Israel liveth, he said. This message disturbed Ahab, but it infuriated Jezebel. The general consensus was that God was dead. They thought that if God was alive and he saw and knew what was going on, surely he would not allow this to continue. But God's delays in judgment are beyond our understanding. His delay in judgment is due sometimes to His long-suffering and His mercy. And His delay in judgment is no excuse for us to leave Him and forsake Him and go ourselves into sin. The Lord is truly the only living and true God. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He and He alone controls all the natural laws that govern this universe. And He and He alone controls all life that exists in this universe, whether it is invisible or visible, whether it is physical or spiritual. And no matter how much man may deny or question God's existence, or His vitality, or exalt themselves, or science as the ultimate reality of the universe, God does exist. And God is still God, and God is alive, and God still reigns over all. He is Almighty God. Elijah also makes it clear that he answers only to Jehovah when he says, before whom I stand. Ahab, I take orders from God and not from you. And yes, we have our own Ahabs and Jezebels, don't we? Who unlawfully seize power 
to gain control, who establish and mandate their own religion and viciously seek to crush any objectors. These Ahabs and Jezebels have made it their mission to eliminate God from our history, remove Him from our lips, from our thoughts, and ban Him from our hearts. But just like Elijah did, I do today. I stand before you and declare that no matter what they do, no matter what they appear to achieve, and no matter what position they may gain, that above it all is God. And God is still the God of America, and God is still alive and in full control. And I am one of 7,000 who stands with Him and will not bow to their gods nor condone their corruption. Judgment was coming, and Elijah was here to announce it. But why was it coming? I want you to see the connection to their sin. Not only the corrupt nation, but the connection to their sins. Turn back again to 1 Kings chapter 11, and notice with me, 1 Kings chapter 11 Verse, verse 9, we read part of this earlier, but I want to back up just to keep it in our thoughts together here. With Solomon, 1 Kings 11, verse 9, And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice, and he and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Wherefore, the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant. Notwithstanding, in thy days I will not do it for David thy father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Just a side note, we see very plainly in Scripture who's in control of the nations, right? Verse 13, Howbeit I will not rend away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe to thy son, for David my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. This judgment came upon Solomon because of his sin. And notice what God does. Verse 14, And the Lord stirred up an adversary of Solomon. He had been at peace with him all this time, but God stirred up an adversary. Look at verse 23. And God stirred him up another adversary. God is in control, working His will and achieving His way. We can go on in chapter 11 and toward the end where Ahijah the prophet is sent to Jeroboam and God's prophet anoints Jeroboam and tells him that he is going to give him ten tribes to rule. Over. And he's going to be the king of that 
northern tribe. We know, we've talked about the sins of Jeroboam and what had happened to him. Turn over to chapter 15, 1 Kings chapter 15. So the kings in order from the northern kingdom were Jeroboam and Nadab his son. After Jeroboam died, Nadab took the throne. And after him was Baasha. And in verse 28 it tells us, 1 Kings 15, 28. 1 Kings 15, 28. Even in the third year of Asa king of Judah did Baasha slay him. Now that is Nadab. Jeroboam's son, and reigned in his stead. And it came to pass when he reigned that he smote all the house of Jeroboam. He left not to Jeroboam any that breathed until he had destroyed him according unto the saying of the Lord which he spake by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. And notice verse 30. Because... Why did God put these people in power and why was there such corruption and why were they getting slain and assassinated and all the goings on that were going on? In verse 30 it says, Because of the sins of Jeroboam which he sinned, and which he made Israel to sin by his provocation wherewith he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. And we can go on and read the rest of chapter 15 and 16 and we can see all these kings and how they sinned and how God brought judgment upon them because of their sin. I guess Proverbs 14.34 is true. Righteousness exalteth the nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. It was the sin of the leaders and the sin of the people that led to God's judgment in the form of corruption, oppression, and tyranny. Yet the people had a disconnect between their sin and the moral and spiritual corruption around them. And I don't really fully understand why that is. The period of time from Solomon to the time of Ahab when Elijah comes on the scene is about 60 years. 60 years worth of corruption. If we backed up America, that would put us back to 1960. Would you say that America was a different country 60 years ago than what she is today? Boy, if we had anybody born in the 1941, we could ask them how it was in 19... But Brother Nate informed us last week that uh, they don't exist anymore. Uh, Yes, you, you folks know. And I think part of the problem is is that the younger people that lived in that day and time in the northern kingdom had never known what it was like under David and the first part of Solomon's reign. And us folks, I'm going to claim to be young tonight. 
us folks that didn't know what the church was like and what our country was like 60 years ago would be very well advised to listen and heed the warnings of our older generation about changes to laws and about even changes to our church. Because they know what it was like to have the blessing of God upon a nation that honored God. I think that could be part of the problem. But it is no excuse. Turn real quickly, if you would, to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. I think the disconnect comes because of one reason. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard of Him and declare unto you that God is light. The preacher was on that this morning. And in Him is no darkness at all. If we say, Three verses start off that way. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So he says, hey, if we say that me and God are okay, I'm walking with God, I'm a servant of God, I'm living for God, but yet your life and walk contradict the law of God, then you're a liar. You are either deceived or trying to deceive. You do not have a genuine walk with God. That's what he's saying. But, he says, there's a colon there, this continues, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from All sin, or in other words, we don't allow sin to continue. God shows us it and we get it right with Him and we get it right with one another. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Well, I don't know of any sins that I'm committing. I'm unaware of anything. This is called blindness. Sometimes when we're not walking in the light, we're blind to our sin. Sometimes when we are not walking in the light like we should, we are know it, but we're trying to fool everybody. And a third situation is in verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. In other words, we are so bold as to deny the clear teaching of Scripture. 
And all of these are a result of the truth not being in us or us not walking in the light, not having a true and genuine relationship with God and staying close to Him. But God's judgment upon a nation does not come unless there is sin. And I think you are got to be spiritually blind if you cannot see the progression of our country and the corruption that is there, not only politically, but also spiritually. The reason it's there is only because of one reason, and that is sin. But we don't think it's ours. And we don't think it's ours because we aren't walking in the light. Elijah, I want you to see this last aspect, the confession that was needed. Elijah states that there would be no dew or rain for years according to his word. We have to go to James to find out that it was actually three and a half years. God had previously warned the nation of Israel that the land would suffer drought and famine if people rejected Him and turned their hearts toward other gods and worshipped them. I'll just give some to you. Leviticus 26, 18 and 20. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 23 and 24. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. I'll read that one real quick for you. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived and ye turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you and He shut up the heaven that there be no rain and that the land yield not her fruit and lest, lest ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. It was a warning before they were going into the promised land that they had better worship God and Him alone or that one of the consequences was going to be that there would be no rain and the land would dry up. We should also note God's admonition to Solomon at the dedication of the temple. Turn quickly, if you would, to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Solomon had taken the materials that David gathered together and had built the temple and they have come to the day of dedication. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 is that day represented in the prayer that Solomon makes. Then in chapter 7 they begin to offer the sacrifices that are there and the fire of God comes down and accepts them and it's a Glorious day. Glorious day. Look down that night. Solomon, after all the festivities are over in 2 Chronicles 7 verse 11. It says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that came into Solomon's heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he prosperously effected. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer 
and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. Notice verse 13. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain. Now that's what we're dealing with in 1 Kings 17.1. Right? If I shut up the heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, then you know verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. It was the confession that was needed to turn the tide of corruption in their nation. Because the only one who could heal their land was Jehovah God. And they had to see that God was bringing judgment upon them. So He had given them a sign way back before they ever were the nation Israel, before they ever had their promised land, that if you sway from me, if you sin and your heart goes away from me, I am going to stop the rain. And when that happens, that ought to be a clear sign to you what is going on. And here is what you can do about it. Humble yourself before God. Humble yourself. Well, how do you do that? Quick search on the Bible on humble yourself pulls up several instances where people did. You know what's so odd that one of the people was Ahab? Yeah, Ahab in chapter 21 and verse 27 after he had realized and was Elijah had gone back to him again and pronounced that he was going to be uh, leaving this earth, he was done and God was going to take his life. It said that when he came to pass, they have heard these words, that he rent his clothes and put, on, put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went on softly. And in verse 28, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Seest thou how Ahab humblest himself before me? And God showed Ahab mercy where some of the judgments did not come until after he had died. Even a wicked Ahab humbled himself before God and the Bible says he did that by prayer and fasting. Fasting. Preacher mentioned that on election day. Twelve hours. It would look like the corruption in our country would grieve you enough that you could go twelve hours fasting 
and praying extra for our country. Did you? I know many of you did. But how serious were we about it? You know, you can go through the motions. I want you to know God moves by what goes on in the heart more than He does by the outward actions. He wants the heart to be right. And if we do not seriously humble ourselves before God, that is the very first step of getting things turned around in our country. We are to pray. We are to seek God's face. We are to turn from our wicked ways. Many people say we're supposed to turn from our sinful ways, but it's not that. That's part of it. It means more than that. Wicked ways lead to sinful actions. We must not only repent of the sin, but we must change our way, our course of life. We oftentimes get a course of life set that takes us away from God rather than toward God. And the result of that is sinful actions. We don't walk in the light. And we either respond one of those three ways. We are totally oblivious to our sin. We are blinded to it. Or we know that we have sin and we try to pass off that we're doing everything just fine. Or either we are so brash and bold in our sin that we allow things like fornication and drunkenness and reveling and sins of the world into our life and we justify it and even use the Bible to justify it. Corruption. Tonight I hope God opens our eyes to where we are as a nation. He, that's what He did to me. I'm just sharing what He did to me. And what He showed me and what I needed to do in my family. He opened my eyes to the corruption of this nation because of our sin. And I've got to admit, my sin. And He led me here. And I have tried this year to truly humble myself before God. To pray to seek His face. And if I have a course in my life that's taken me away from God, I want to turn from it. And I ask Him to show me that. And I hope that you have the same heart in that that I do. I believe you do. But boy, we can get a disconnect from what's going on. Hmm? when we realize it's our sin that's brought this about. And there is something I can do. 
You know, it doesn't matter who the ruler ends up being because the corruption is still going to be there. God's the only one who can take care of all those problems. All we have to do is humble ourselves before Him. Seek His face. Pray. Seek His face. And turn from any ways that He brings to light that are not the right way. God help us to make Him number one. Hmm? But it all starts with humbling yourself. If you haven't done that, you need to. Some of you are all worked up about what's going on in our country. May I remind you that God is still the God of our country and He is still alive. And He is more involved in the affairs of our nation than what we, we give Him credit for. Let's draw close to God. Let's draw closer to God than we ever have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for...